Now, I am really excited about tonight's study. Uh, this paragraph uh, is amazing. And what we've been doing in the book of Exodus is we have been seeing this as God's picture book to teach us about redemption. It is showing us what God is going to do in regards to redemption, not only for Israel, but what he's going to do through Christ for the whole world. And so Moses is the picture of that and the things that Moses does in his life. And uh, I, I think it's easy to look at Moses and think, okay, well, the, the template is, well, Moses led the people out of Egypt, and so God leaves, leads us out of slavery. And that really misses a whole lot of pictures that God leaves for us. This is a great example of it here in Exodus chapter 2 in the second half of, of this chapter, where uh, every detail that's given to us here about the life of Moses is going to be repeated by Christ. And uh, this is not a chapter where you probably would think that that would be the case. This is kind of one of those chapters where you go, okay, yeah, he... He uh, kills an Egyptian and goes to Midian, and okay, let's get on with the story, right? But uh, the details of how it is recorded for us tell us an awful lot about what Christ is going to do. So as we've been doing in our study of Exodus, we will do again tonight is that we will look at the life of Moses that's given to us. As we go through that, we will observe the parallels to the life of Christ, and then at the end, we'll talk about application uh, for our lives as well. So to begin, let's begin with Exodus chapter 2, and we will look at verses 11 through 15 to begin. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and had hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Let's start there and notice what happens here. Uh, you have to observe one of the things that's not even recorded that already puts us in parallel with Christ. You will notice that what we did with the life of Moses is that we were given the background of the those the, uh, baby boys of the Hebrews were going to be killed. And then we see the birth of Moses, right? And then what do we do? We jump to his adulthood. And what we've told by other scriptures, he's 40 years old at this point when when this happens. And how often we've read the life of Christ and we, we get his birth and then what happens? This big void and then we suddenly he's an adult and here goes his life. Notice Exodus does the exact same thing. Here is Moses. He's born. Then what? Bang. Here we go. We're right into his adulthood. We don't get any of the details of what it like to be a teenager, what life looked like, you know, living in Pharaoh's court or any of those kinds of things. All the questions that we would ask about Moses, same kind of questions we'd ask about Jesus. Notice that even the recording of the events is in parallel that I want to give you the birth. And now we're going to jump all of those years to now the beginning of the ministry, if you will, the beginning of the life then that we need to pay attention to regarding uh, Moses. Now, 
The way the picture begins, I think, is particularly interesting. Notice it says there in verse 11, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And so what you have already set up is Moses, notice it says he goes to his people. Now, we observed in the last chapter that Moses was going to be taken into uh, the Pharaoh's house, the daughter of Pharaoh, and was counted as her son. And yet, even at that, here's Moses first seen, and where is he going to go to? But he is going to go to his people. And the Hebrew here in describing him going to his people and looking at them is not a word of just casual observation that he decided, well, I'm going to go out there and just see what they're up to but it's a word that conveys compassion that he goes out to his people and looks upon what is happening to them because they are enslaved in Egypt and the burdens are weighty upon them and he is then moved with compassion that is how he is looking upon them which is exactly how the New Testament pictures Christ when Christ comes along and we see Jesus he comes to his own and he looks upon the crowds and he has compassion upon them because they were harassed and held like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9 and verse 36. And so here is Moses and he wants to then come to his people and notice that it's highlighted twice, not only at the beginning of verse 11, but it's truly emphasized at the end of verse 11, one of his people. Moses is coming to his people. He has come to them. And it is then an interesting picture that is given to us because he's not just merely then coming, but he comes with emotion. But not only then is he coming with emotion, but he is coming to rescue. Often when we have read this in verse 12, we read this and it will say, well, he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And your initial reaction is what Moses is doing is he's looking to try to get away with killing the Egyptian, right? He looks this way and he looks that way and it doesn't look like anybody's looking so he's going to kill him, which of course we find out isn't true because the next day apparently everybody already knows that he had killed the Egyptian. This is immediately what the Hebrews spout off when he comes out the next day. Next line tells us Pharaoh knows about it. So if this idea was he looked this way and that way and was making sure nobody saw what he was doing, he failed miserably because everybody was already aware of it the next day. In fact, the language here of it saying that he looked this way and saw no one is an interesting Hebrew idiom that God uses as well. Notice Isaiah 59. And here is, uh, when we studied Isaiah, this is actually a, a messianic uh, prophecy, but notice how the same language is there. Here is this declaration about the way things are. And he says, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and righteousness upheld him. Notice it's the same the same language that, that is given there, that what God is doing, and is a picture of Messiah, is he's going to look upon all of this evil, look upon all of this wickedness, and he says there is no justice. And what is he looking around to see? If somebody's going to do something about it, there is no truth. It's all evil. There's no justice. And is somebody going to do something about it? And the answer is no. And so what, he do, what does he do? 
His own arm brings salvation. His own arm brings deliverance. And He then brings the justice. And this is what Christ was going to accomplish. This is what's being told to us here about Moses. And the idea of Him looking this way and that way is not just merely a concern to conceal this. But what He is looking for is justice. Something is going wrong in this scene. Here is the Egyptian that is beating this Hebrew slave. And Moses looks to see, is there going to be justice? Is somebody going to do something about this? He looks this way, he looks that way, and he sees no one. So what is he going to do? He's going to do something about it. He is going to be the one to deliver. What is being set up for us already is that Moses is ready to be Israel's deliverer. He is already beginning to function in that role. And we see that for a couple of reasons. One, remember what we saw earlier in chapter 2. We are told about that the, the parents, they keep Moses alive in the midst of all this death and gloom because they saw that he was a fine, beautiful child. We noted it wasn't an external beauty, but but they understood that God was going to do something special with Moses. So you can already imagine the parents have taught him this. Understand, this is who you are. You are special to God. You have a particular role. But listen to what Acts says about this very scene. Acts 7 verse 23. Here's Stephen's sermon. When he was 40 years old, speaking of Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. This is the scene. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Notice the idea of justice here. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. See what Moses thought was going on here? Moses has come to deliver. The Egyptian is oppressing the Hebrew. Moses looks this way and that way and saw no one to bring about justice. And he knew he was here to deliver Israel, so he does something about it. But the text goes on to say, but they did not understand that. And this reminds us that we're talking about this event because notice the next line. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Notice that Stephen is pinpointing this very event in chapter 2. And the reason that Moses has gone out to his people is he is seeing their condition. He is moved with compassion. He has come to be their rescuer and deliverer. And seeing that no one was going to do that, he himself takes on the role and begins to act. Notice that Acts tells us he thought his own people were going to understand that. That they were going to go, Moses is our rescuer, he is here to save us. But in fact, what is the response of the Hebrews? Notice in verse 13, here's these two Hebrews struggling together. And so Moses says to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And notice the response that is given to him. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who do you think you are? Who said you're going to rule over us? Who said you're in charge? And what I want us to see is the story is already setting up for us that the role that Moses will play as Savior and Redeemer is immediately met with opposition. 
Notice the scene that's given. Here are the Hebrews. They are enslaved. The deliverer comes to his own people, sees their condition, is moved with compassion, begins to act in deliverance for them. And the response of the people is, who made you ruler and judge over us? And they reject what Moses is doing. Sound familiar? John 1 verse 11, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What you have being set up for us is the idea that Jesus would be met with the same rejection and hostility. Remember how many times Jesus will talk to His disciples and say, Well, don't you know that the Son of Man has to suffer and die? And where would you go in the Scriptures to find that? We usually say, well, Isaiah 53. Okay, yes. But is that the only place? Actually, you have this whole picture of Moses as the template of what it's going to look like when the new Savior, new Deliverer, the new Moses and the new Exodus comes. Is that he's also going to be rejected by his own people just as Moses was rejected by his own people. And so it's such an interesting scene that is given to us about what Moses is attempting to do. That he understood that he was to be the deliverer of the people, but his own people do not recognize that even though he thought they would. Let's listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in this as well. The writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 11.24 By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." And what I want you then to observe that's happening here is so Moses is leaving the privileged house of Pharaoh and is coming to his own people to save them only to be met met with rejection and hostility. Who made you ruler over us? Jesus leaves the privileged house of his father in heaven, comes to his own people to save them only to be met with rejection and hostility. Who made you a ruler over us? Now you have Moses here regarded as this despised Hebrew rather than the privileged Egyptian that he could have been recognized as. Jesus is regarded as a despised and rejected by men, rather than the privileged and rightful error son of God that he was. You're having these parallels already being dug out for us in this picture. Now, did you notice something that might have been strange to you in this? Writer of Hebrews says... That he was not afraid of the anger of the king. By faith he leaves Egypt not being afraid by the anger of the king. Now back here in Exodus chapter 2, we're told here in verse, uh, let's see, verse 14, after they say to him, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. And you read that and it's kind of think, well, 
did they just disagree with each other? Because it sounds on the surface that Moses is afraid of Pharaoh and that's why he flees to Midian. The writer of Hebrews seems to want to make it clear that's not the reason why. Why does, why does Moses then leave? Why is he running off to Midian? And I think then it's important to see what these last few verses have been talking about and what Stephen says in his sermon is that Moses thought he was going to come to his people and they were going to accept him and he was going to be their deliverer and we were going to deal with the Egyptians and realizes they're not going to accept him. Hold that in mind in the future because when we get out to chapter 3 and 4 and we get really hard on Moses when God tells him to go back to the people and lead them as a deliverer and he's got every excuse in the book why not, perhaps there's a reason why he's concerned about that. Because he already tried that once and his own people rejected his attempt to deliver them and leaves now in fear because his people don't even support him in his effort to deliver. And I submit to you, that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at and saying he didn't fear Pharaoh in in death, even though it may sound like that in Exodus. What does he fear? This isn't a failed attempt is what this is. This isn't a failed attempt to try to deliver the people of Israel. But this is what God is setting up for a picture for us. Now, watch the interesting contrast that sets with with Moses. Look at verse 16 now. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and drew even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is absolutely fascinating. And so now Moses is in the wilderness. He flees to the land of of Midian. And notice the scene that's presented. So here he is, he is sitting down by a well. This priest of Midian has seven daughters and they have come to draw water and to fill the troughs and to drink for their father's flock. But these shepherds come in and drive them away. And so what does Moses do? Moses, the deliverer that he is, (laughs) stands up and says, I'm not going to have any of that. And notice that he saves these Gentile women. These daughters of of Midian here, just daughters of Ruel in Midian, he rises up now and he delivers them. Now here's the irony, is that Moses now finds acceptance apart from his own people. When the daughters go back and tell Ruel, the the father, well, here's what, and he goes, why are you back so fast? And they say, well, there was this man who rescued us. And not only did he rescue us from these shepherds, but he also then even drew water, which by the way, that's outlandish. That was absolutely outlandish for a man to draw water for these women. If Moses is doing something unbelievable, that's why Ruel goes, uh, why did you leave him back there? You should have brought him. Not only has he rescued you, but he's doing these acts of kindness for you. What's the response of the Gentiles when Moses saves these people? Acceptance. Moses attempts to rescue Israel in slavery, and they respond with 
rejection. Moses now goes to Midian and now rescues these, these women who are Midianites. And what's the response? Acceptance. They bring him into the family. It goes even further that Moses now marries one of the foreign women, right? Moses marries one of these Midianites, which is highlighting the very point of Israel's rejection of Moses. It just even underscores it all the more that Moses does not marry a Hebrew, but goes out and marries a Midianite, uh, Zipporah, and is going to have then family then through the Gentiles. And so what you notice then is Israel's rejection of Moses' deliverance allows for the Gentiles' acceptance of Moses' deliverance. This is a fascinating scene that is laying out here that we're just reading the New Testament all over the place, jumping out of that. Not only that, what is the role of Moses then as he now comes into the family of Ruel? Not only do you begin to see it here, but chapter 3, verse 1 tells us he begins to operate as a shepherd. And now functions as a shepherd with the people there. And so he's a savior. He is a deliverer. He is a shepherd. And not only that, the name of Moses' son underscores all of that. When in verse 22, he says there, I names him Gershon for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, When you first read that, you would think he would have said, I am a sojourner in a foreign land. I'm in Midian and I'm in a foreign land. That's not what he says. What he says is he speaks of Egypt. I am, I, I have been a foreigner, a sojourner in a foreign land. Egypt is the foreign land is how he looks at it. Egypt is not his home, which is why I put on the screen Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16, which is what the writer of Hebrews underscores again and again. He didn't consider himself a Pharaoh's house, didn't consider himself an Egyptian. He looked for the greater glory and tied himself to the people of God. And that's being underscored even in the language of naming the child this and saying, uh, Egypt was a foreign land. Egypt is where I used to sojourn as a a foreigner and so it pictures backward looking at what had happened in Egypt and he sees that in his life as a time in the past and this is where he's going to be in the future from now on which of course he doesn't know that that's not going to be the case but that's what he thinks at this moment now look at what God does here you have this movement of Moses and now God is going to do something here verse 23 during those many days the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The way that it is written is, is staggering as this kind of finale as it prepares for us for the call of, of Moses. Notice you have, so after many days, the king of Egypt dies. And now we're, that means once the king of Egypt dies, we're preparing to have deliverance. If you remember, we have Jesus in Egypt and once Herod dies, now we're ready for Jesus to come back and begin to do the work of living in that land. Same thing is being given to us here. Moses must flee to Midian when the Pharaoh dies. Now we're going to see if we didn't have a three in the way, the burning bush is next. Moses is going to go back and begin to his act of deliverance. But notice the emphasis about God. It keeps saying God, 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 God. Verse 23, here is the groaning of the people. And it says that God heard their groaning. 
And then verse 24 continues it. God remembered his covenant. Important to talk about that for a minute. You know, often you'll read about God remembering things. And sometimes you'll read that and think, does God have a memory issue? <laughs> you know, all of a sudden it'll say, you know, and he remembered something that he'd said earlier. And you think, what do you mean by that? But when you see God calling things into remembrance, it is always tied to an action. What it means is not that he forgot what he had promised or forgot the covenant he had made. But when God remembers, what it's saying is there is now an action that is about to occur. God remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that's underscoring then is that God is about to act upon what he's promised. Which the very next line that you come to is, here's Moses in the burning bush. God is about to do something. And so God remembering a covenant doesn't mean that he is forgotten in the slightest what it always means is god is now about to act he's about to accomplish something and so stand back and watch out because it is time for god to accomplish the very thing that he has promised but not only that does he remember his covenant verse 25 god saw his people god knew what was going on we have underlined that in our job study that we just wrapped up on our sunday night Study that we have over and over again noticed God knew exactly what was going on. And here is that scene given to us again. The cry of the people comes up to God. God hears their cry. God hears their plea. God hears their groaning. God knows what he is going to do. He remembers his covenant. He then sees his people. He knows what they are experiencing. And I love just the subtle ending. And God knew. And all of us want to complete that, right? God knew what right god knew and i think the idea is god knew what he was doing next here's what's about to happen god knew all of this that is going on and now he is about to accomplish his great work and so it is preparing us for this great deliverer is going to come but what is so fascinating is leading up to this point it looks like this is a botched attempt at deliverance Moses knows that he's going to deliver his people. His people reject him. And now he's out in the wilderness. Now there he is out there in Midian. And it looks like his time is done. It doesn't look like he's going to be delivered. But God sees all that is going on. God knows what is happening. And God remembers his covenant and is about to act. So let's talk about some of the portraits then. About what Exodus is picturing in regards to a redeemer. And then we can talk about what this will mean for us. First, I want you to notice there are three pictures of what the Redeemer will look like. We've seen that Moses in Deuteronomy will say that you be aware that there's going to be a a prophet like me who will rise up and he's going to accomplish these things. What should they have been looking for? The first picture that we are given here in, in verse 11 and verse 17 is that Moses is going to be a protector and a rescuer. He comes to protect and rescue Israel. But I just want you just to be astounded that all the way back here in Exodus 2, God is picturing his Savior Redeemer delivering Gentiles. All the way back here, even before the prophets, before all those things, here's Moses. And he's rescuing even Gentiles. He's already doing that very task. And to underscore the fact that That is the Gentile acceptance of him and an Israel rejection of him already being depicted at the very beginning of Moses' ministry. 
Second, Moses is depicted as a shepherd, that he will be the one who will come and lead and care for his people. This ties in beautifully with Jeremiah that we looked at is that the false shepherds during the days of Israel, they are the ones who are rejected, but there's going to be a new shepherd, the good shepherd who's going to come and he will rule in righteousness and justice and he will lead his people. In fact, I think it's so interesting that you have these shepherds driving away the, the, the righteous, if you will, which is interesting because that's what we've seen in their study of Jeremiah. It's something that you see even Jesus talking about how the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day had falsely led the people astray and they needed a new shepherd. And Moses comes and functions in that. And third, notice that Moses is depicted as an outcast. In verses 14 and 15, he's depicted as being outcast and rejected by his own people. And that's underscored in verse 22 when he says of his calling his son and saying, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. It's this third aspect in particular of Moses being an outcast and being rejected by his own people that the New Testament seizes upon and really underscores and uses that idea in teaching in the New Testament about this is what Christ was going to have happen to him. One of the big stumbling blocks that you see in the first century for Jews and Gentiles alike is the rejection of Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, as King. And the thing that you see the apostles constantly running around saying is this was the foreknowledge of God. This was the very plan of God. And notice this is the argument that Stephen is making when he uses the illustration of the life of Moses. Ezekiel, or excuse me, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites... God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Notice that Stephen is, is setting the die right there and casting and saying, all right, you remember that the prophecy was the new prophet to come, the Messiah, will be like Moses. He wants that connection to be firmly in place. You know that he's going to be just like Moses. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. So notice the first picture Stephen says is, now you remember that we have the new Messiah, the new Moses, this new Exodus in Christ, and it's supposed to be just like Moses. Now remember what you did to Moses. He came, he brought you life, he brought you the living oracles, he came down from Mount Sinai, but the fathers refused to obey him. They cast him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Now jump forward to verse 51 of Acts chapter 7. Here's Stephen then. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who have received the law as delivered by angels but did not keep it. Notice the point that he makes. The point is not simply, just as your forefathers rejected God, so you're rejecting God. It's stronger than that, though that's part of what he says. 
But the point that he's getting at is just like your fathers rejected the deliverer and savior back then, Moses, you've done the very same thing. And that is a fulfillment of what Moses said, that God will raise up a prophet just like me. And just as Moses was rejected by his own people, so now Jesus is rejected by his own people. And Stephen is using that and saying, don't you see that that's what makes him Moses? That's what makes him the prophet that was to come. His life from very beginning to end was just like Moses' life. Jesus fulfills every single detail. And just as you guys rejected him in the past when you rejected Moses, so now Jesus has died because you have rejected rejected him as well that's the power of what Stephen is doing right there it's just underscoring you're saying that because you rejected him and killed him that makes him not the prophet not the savior and Stephen turns that and says no because you rejected him that's just another point of proof that that's exactly who he is He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior because of that. So just as Moses was rejected by his people in his day, when he came out to them and was moved with compassion and rescued them, so Jesus is rejected by his people when he comes down to them and is moved with compassion and rescues them. Now, what about us? What does all that do with us? I'd like for you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews says as he ties Jesus and Moses together and gives a very stern warning that we will end on tonight. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, I I think I've often ended right there and did, okay, now notice all the comparisons. Notice it talks about Moses is a servant in the house, but Christ is over the house as a son. But look at the last line. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We're the house. That's a staggering picture all of a sudden. Here is this idea of, yeah, here's Moses and here's Christ. And then he just kind of confirms this and says, now, you understand that Christ being faithful over all the house and as the son, here we are as the house. We get to enjoy this relationship. We get to enjoy the blessings. We get to enjoy deliverance. We get to enjoy everything that God was promising even back in the days of Moses because it says there that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses is testifying of things to happen later. How was he doing that? Because his whole life was a picture book of what Christ was going to do when he came. Everything that happened in his life was going to happen again when Christ came. 
And then the writer just pushes it forward and says, now you understand that if you hold fast to your confession and you hold fast to the hope and the rejoicing that you have in Christ, that we then are able to enjoy all the blessings that were being promised. In seeing Christ as our protector, he is our shepherd, he is our savior, he is our redeemer. If we will hold fast to the Lord and listen to all the words of Jesus, if we will listen to him and hold fast to the confession of our faith, we are family in Christ. We are in God's house. We are his children. We are the house. We belong to him. And that is the hope that we have because we have been rescued by Jesus. This is why the writer of Hebrews, if you think about how often he'll give this kind of warning where he will say, don't reject the message you've heard because you saw what happened when through Moses that word was rejected. How much worse when the son comes and says it and if we were to reject the message. Let's not fall into the same trap and the same temptation of what you see those of Israel doing where the deliverer has come. And they said to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? And the answer was, God did. And you should have listened to everything Moses said. Christ comes. People reject him like crazy, left and right. Who made him to be judge and ruler over us? Who said Christ tell us what to do? God did. God established him as ruler supreme over heaven and earth and our king because he came to his own. His own did not receive him, but he was moved with compassion, dies for the sins of the people, raises from the dead three days later, proving himself to be the Son of God. And now the call to us is don't reject the message. Hold fast to the Word of God and do not give up. Hold on to the faith that you have. For if you do, if you hold on to that confidence, he says, you belong in the family of Christ. You're part of God's house. And you enjoy all the blessings that come from that. I'm blown away that Exodus 2 has all of these parallels. Every little piece of Moses' life is all in parallel to what God was going to accomplish in Christ. And I hope we just are able to stand in awe and see it was all according to the foreknowledge of God. Everything that happened was exactly according to plan. And every detail about not only what happened in the life of Christ, but even how it was recorded for us was to show us this is what already happened before. As God rescued in the past, he has come to rescue again. Will you be rescued from your sins? Jesus has died for you. Will you turn away from your sins tonight? Believe in him with all your heart. Confess him to be the son of God and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're ready to do that, will you come now while we stand?